This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, hello there. It's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the One Verse Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to discuss the lake of fire. What is the lake of fire in the Bible, specifically in Revelation 20 and 21? And does it refer to hell as a place where God sends unbelievers to suffer and burn and scream and torment and torture forever and ever as their eternal bodies suffer in the flames? <laughs> Well, you probably, if you've listened to the podcast episodes on hell so far, you probably know that I will be answering this question with a no. God doesn't torture people in flames of fire forever and ever. And even though many people think the lake of fire teaches exactly this, we will see from our discussion today that it does not. Now, today's podcast episode is sponsored by you. (laughs) Uh, Now, seriously... If you appreciate what I teach in these podcasts, not just these ones on hell, but the ones we did on Jonah and Genesis and the gospel and a lot of the other things that we cover on this podcast, you can support this podcast in one of two ways. One, you can buy some of my books, right? That would be an encouragement to me to keep on teaching and writing. But also, the little dollar or two I get when you buy one of my books helps support the expenses I have of producing and hosting this podcast. It's not cheap to run a podcast uh, and my blog and and even get books out there. So when you buy one or two of my books in Kindle or paperback or wherever you like to get books, uh, that supports the work that I'm doing and the teaching. So that's the first way. Now, if you really want the full experience of everything I teach and offer, you can also support, sponsor this podcast by joining my online discipleship group. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash join to learn more. There's all of these online courses you can take. There's over $1,000 worth of them so far. And um, when you join, though, you don't pay any additional price for these courses. Right? They are 100% free for everybody in my discipleship group. So it looks like I have nine courses available right now. One on hell, of course, that one's not quite ready yet, but it'll be ready in May or June. One on the spiritual gifts, how to study the Bible, one on prayer, one on the doctrine of election, a couple on the gospel, one on the church, all right? And these courses are the things that I have learned over the years that have helped me make a lot more sense of the Bible and what God is doing in my life and how to share the gospel with others and even how to know for sure that I have eternal life, right? These are the things that I wish I had known 30 years ago when I first started studying, reading, writing, and teaching about scripture and theology, all right? So if you have questions about those sorts of things, join my discipleship group, get set on the right foot, uh, right from the beginning, you know, start at square one and uh, learn some of these things that will really help you and your life and your theology in the future. And by joining, you get these free courses and you also are supporting my work and this podcast. Thank you so very much for those who've already joined the online discipleship group. So let's talk about this concept of the lake of fire then. All right. Now it is from my forthcoming book, what is hell? So if you're looking for one of the books to buy, you can pre-order my book, What is Hell, right now over on Amazon. It's only $2.99 for the Kindle version. And in the book, I look at the history of how hell has developed, this idea about hell as a place of burning, suffering, and torment and torture for unbelievers. Uh, we also look at several key words from the Bible about hell, uh, such as Sheol, a Hebrew word, uh, Gehenna, Uh, Abyss, Tartarus, Hades, the outer darkness, the concept of fire, and even the lake of fire. And then we look at uh, how hell is experienced, what hell is, where hell is, and how we as the church can help Jesus batter down the gates of hell. The book Hell also has an appendix with where we look at several, about a dozen, 15, 20 uh, key passages from the Bible about hell. And we'll be studying some of those in future podcast episodes as well. But in today's podcast episode, we want to discuss the concept of the lake of fire. 
And I would say that of all of the terms for hell in the Bible, this one has caused the most consternation, the most fear in the minds of many people, because the way it is often taught or presented is this idea of unbelievers getting thrown into this lake of lava, where there's fire and sometimes even demons who are torturing them, and the people there are screaming and burning in agony forever and ever. And obviously, that concept is horrifying for people to think about, for themselves or for their loved ones, or really for anybody. Who deserves that? Right? Nobody does. Uh, Furthermore, because of that idea, this concept of the lake of fire has psychologically tormented lots of people in this life. Aside from the fear about such torment in the afterlife, that fear about, oh, I hope I don't end up in the lake of fire, has caused psychological, emotional torment in the lives and hearts and minds of many people, even here. All right, so what is the lake of fire and how can we understand it? There are a wide variety of views on this, on what the lake of fire is, and obviously some of them are quite outlandish. I read one scholar in a book recently, as I was writing my own book, uh, What is Hell?, And this scholar argued that the lake of fire is our sun. (laughs) Yeah, the the star at the center of our solar system. And he said that when people die, God transports their souls to our sun, and that is where they burn (laughs) forever. Okay, so that's one view. Um, In fact, I talked to a seminary professor. I won't say who. Some of you would know this person's name. And he argued that since all humans around the earth, this is literally the logic he used, okay? I am not making this up. He argued that since all of the humans around the earth, when they talk about hell or the lake of fire, they point down, right? We talk about going down to hell and up to heaven, okay? Well, you have this globe, this world, and all the people around the earth are pointing down, to talk about hell, he said this idea of down was built into our hearts and our spirits by God, the Holy Spirit, because that is where hell is. And since they all are pointing down, all of their pointing meets up at the center of the earth, which, as we know from science, is a molten core of lava. And he says, therefore, that is the lake of fire. The magma core at the center of the earth, according to this seminary professor, is the lake of fire. And I promise you I'm not making not making that view up. It was his view. It is his view. All right. Now, those are some of the outlandish views. Most concepts of the lake of fire, though, teach that uh, it's some sort of place created by God where he sent, and we don't know where it is or exactly how it exists, what it's going to be like exactly. But the, the, the common view is that, that yes, unregenerate, unredeemed uh, non-believers are going to be sent there sometime in the future where they will suffer and burn in torment for all eternity. Okay, that's sort of the common view. Now, there's some other um, maybe slightly less horrific views, although maybe only slightly by degrees. I've read some universalists. Universalists tend to believe that all people eventually will end up in heaven uh, with God. And I have read some universalists who believe that the lake of fire does exist, and some people will go there before they end up in heaven, but they will go to the lake of fire for sort of a temporary time of torture, uh, where they have all their impurities burned out of them before they are allowed entrance into heaven, okay? It's sort of a purgatory sort of view uh, that some universalists have. Uh, I've even read a recent view that argued that the lake of fire refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, when the town, the city of Jerusalem and the temple and many of the people in the city were destroyed by the Roman military and uh, the city and the people were burned, all right? And um, so that also sort of refers to a temporary time of torture or burning or suffering with flame, okay? But look, in all of these uh, examples, all of these explanations, whether we're talking about an eternal time of suffering or a shorter time of suffering, whether in the next life or even in this life, in all cases, 
the people who hold those views are sort of arguing that God is the one who is sending certain people to this time of torture and suffering and burning. And I have great problems with that. I don't think God tortures anybody. Look, God tells us, God commands us to not torture people. Instead, we're supposed to love and forgive our enemies, right? And so are we supposed to think that even though God tells us to love our enemies, God himself tortures his enemies? I mean, is, is it okay for God to do what he, tell, he forbids us to do? Honestly, some Christians say, yeah, that's okay. God is God. He can do what he wants. But I disagree. I think the rules and commands that God gives us come from his very nature and from his very character, from the way he himself behaves. God himself does not act in ways that are the opposite or that are contrary to how he instructs us to behave. So therefore, since we are not supposed to torture people, we're supposed to love and forgive all people, even our enemies, I believe God does the same thing, even towards his enemies, which God doesn't have enemies. It's a completely separate discussion, okay? Um, so since this is the case, then we need to understand what is meant in the Bible by this concept of the lake of fire. If God isn't sending people to the lake of fire to experience torture and suffering and burning, then what is the lake of fire? What is meant by it when it is referred to, talked about, written about in Revelation 20, verses 10, uh, uh, 14 and 15, and in Revelation 21, 8? What is the lake of fire in these verses? Well, bottom line is, I do not believe that when John writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this vision from Jesus Christ, uh, that when he wrote about the lake of fire, I do not think he was thinking about tortured souls screaming in agony while being boiled alive in a lake of lava for all eternity. Okay, And we know this because the lake of fire idea is found in the book of Revelation, and only in the book of Revelation. And I would argue... Some of you might challenge this idea, but I would argue that very little in the book of Revelation should be understood literally, okay? Even those who say, well, the whole Bible needs to be understood literally, even they understand that most of the book of Revelation, if not all the book of Revelation, is heavy in symbolism. I read the Bible, and especially the book of Revelation, very seriously. I take its message very seriously. I do not think there's any errors in the Bible at all. Okay, I do hold to a high view of Scripture, inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, but this doesn't mean that every. I, I, we, that means that many portions of the Bible need to be understood with within their figures of speech, uh, using the symbolism and and other concepts, uh, grammatical and literary concepts that help us understand the Scripture. And I do talk about that in my in my online course about how to study the Bible. Okay, and when we under when we study the Book of Revelation, it's very important to give careful attention to its words, its images, and its, and its ideas, and remember that John was not writing this book in a vacuum. All of the symbols in the book of Revelation can find parallels in the things that were surrounding John in his day, such as the Hebrew scriptures. To understand the book of Revelation, you need to be very in tune to the imagery and symbolism found in the Hebrew scriptures, what we often call the Old Testament. Not only that, but um, John is very Christ-centered in his theology. So you need to have a good Christology, understanding how John viewed Jesus and what Jesus was about and why Jesus came. That's very important to understand the book of Revelation. Also, you need to understand Mediterranean culture. This is the culture, the time, the geography that John was living in. And so you need to understand the, 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 the culture, the history, the geography even of that time. And of course, the politics of that time, uh, the religious scene and the political scene and how the two were mixed up, okay, with the Roman military and uh, even the Roman religion and also the Jewish religion. 
Okay, all of those, those images and symbols uh, and, and teachings and ideas are wrapped up together in the book of Revelation, and you understand the book of Revelation a whole lot more when you understand all of those areas, okay? So when we turn to Revelation 20 and 21 to discover, to study what is meant by the lake of fire, the first thing we need to do is look to the first century Mediterranean world, and see if there might be something in that time, in that day, that John might have been referring to when he wrote about the lake of fire. And guess what? When you do that, it doesn't take long to discover that there was indeed a place in John's day, at John's time, that was referred to as the lake of fire. Okay? It existed in his day. In fact, it still exists today, and you can go swim in it today if you want to. (laughs) Many people do. In fact, I guarantee right now, probably as I'm talking in this part of the world, well, it's probably night in this part of the world right now, uh, but when I'm asleep tonight, there's probably going to be people swimming in the lake of fire uh, tomorrow. Okay, or maybe there is some right now. There's probably some boats out on it as it, as it, as it is. Okay, now uh, don't worry though. If you go swimming in the lake of fire, you might get a sunburn, but you're not going to burn up. Okay, uh, you're not going to be screaming in agony. And we'll talk about what more on that in a bit. Okay, now to help you understand this though, let's just ta- stop talking for a minute about the lake of fire, and instead talk about something else. If I told you that I was going to go live in Salt Lake, what would you think? All right? Would you think that I am going to go float around in some lake that is super salty? (laughs) You know, and that's where I'm going to be living? No. You would understand, if I said I was going to go live in Salt Lake, that I'm not going to be living in the lake I'm going to be living on the shore of Salt Lake in the city called Salt Lake City, okay? You would understand that if I was moving to Salt Lake, (laughs) that I'm not going to live in the salty lake. I'm going to live in Salt Lake City. In fact, it would be entirely possible for me to live my entire life in Salt Lake without ever setting foot in the Salt Lake, okay? There's probably lots of people who live in Salt Lake, Salt Lake City, who have never, ever, ever set their foot in the lake itself. Okay? Another example. Uh, What if you heard that someone was going to live in the Valley of Fire? Or maybe they were going to go visit the Valley of Fire for vacation. Now, maybe you've never heard of the Valley of Fire, but if you heard a friend say they they went on vacation and they visited the Valley of Fire and you don't know what they're talking about, are you going to imagine that there was some valley and it's filled with flames and lava and burning, and this crazy friend of yours is actually going to go down there and walk around in the lava and burning pits, and they're going to be screaming and suffering and in torture? No, you're going to realize, oh, weird, I wonder what the Valley of Fire is. Uh, It must be some place they're going to visit, and you would go look it up, and you would immediately find, do a Google search, Valley of Fire, that this is a valley outside of Las Vegas, Nevada, that many, many people visit. About 300,000 people go into the Valley of Fire every year, and guess what? For the most part, (laughs) they all come back out, none the worse for wear. Yeah, maybe a little thirsty, they didn't bring enough water. Maybe some of them get some sunburn if they didn't wear sunscreen. And I don't know that anybody dies down there in the Valley of Fire each year, but I imagine there might've been an accident or two over the years and maybe someone did, but it's not because of the Valley of Fire. It's not because of flames. It's just because of their accidents, okay? The point is, if someone goes to visit the Valley of Fire, you don't think they're gonna go there and burn and suffer and scream during their vacation, okay? So these two examples, Salt Lake and the Valley of Fire, give us some understanding of what readers in the days of John would have heard when he talks about the lake of fire. All right? Now, we're not in John's day, in John's region, at John's time. And so we read the lake of fire, and for some reason in our brain, we think, oh, it's like a big pit of lava, and it's burning. 
All right? <laughs> but we don't think that when we read Salt Lake or when we hear about the Valley of Fire, and people in John's day wouldn't have thought that when they read about the Lake of Fire. Okay? The Lake of Fire was and is a literal place on planet Earth. And many people then and today and throughout church history have gone and visited the Lake of Fire and even swam around in it without any problems. Okay, but if you don't know what the Lake of Fire is or where it is, and you just assume that this is, you're just going to assume that this is a burning pit of lava or something that God throws people into, and that assumption will be wrong. So, what is the Lake of Fire? Where is the Lake of Fire? Well, Guess what? The lake of fire in John's day is what we now call today the Dead Sea. All right? Uh, It also was known as the Fiery Lake or the Lake of Fire. We call it the Dead Sea today. And you know where the Dead Sea is. It's just east of Jerusalem and uh, out in the wilderness area. There's not. It's full of salt. It's very much like the Salt Lake. But uh, it was called the Fiery Lake at that time. Okay, and um, it sits on a fault line. And uh, during the several thousand years prior to the first century AD, when John was writing, the the faults along there used to regularly erupt. In fact, there are there are these um, dormant volcanoes beneath the waters of the Dead Sea. They are um, uh, asphalt volcanoes. All right, but when they used to erupt, they would spew forth tar and pitch and bitumen, asphaltites, smoke, sulfur, and sometimes even bouts of flame. And uh, the Greeks, back in ancient Greek literature, named it uh, Lake Asphaltites because of the asphalt volcanoes that would regularly erupt with smoke and flame from the surface of the lake. All right, now the Greeks weren't the only ones who described the sea in such a way. The wisdom of Solomon. Okay, um, it's an again a, a, an Old Testament apocryphal book, uh, but it records that Lot escaped the fire that came on the five cities, cities whose wickedness is still attested by a smoking waste. So whoever wrote the Wisdom of Solomon in his day, that region was still smoking. All right, and so people said, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, and so this whole region is filled with smoke and the smell of burning tar and sulfur, and there's flame. All right, uh, and 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 wisdom of Solomon talked about that. Diodorus Siculus, he was a first century BC historian, so he's living in the first century, right before Jesus was born, and he wrote in his history, uh, Bibliotheca Historica. This is what he wrote. The fire which burns beneath the ground and the stench render the inhabitants of the neighboring country sickly and very short-lived. So he's writing about the Dead Sea region. Philo, you've probably heard about Philo, this Jewish historian uh, that wrote around this time. He wrote in the days before the ministry of Jesus as well. And he said that the valley of the Dead Sea was filled with fires, which are very difficult to extinguish. And that many of those fires have been smoking and burning for a very long time, even to his own day. You're beginning to see why they referred to this region as the Lake of Fire. Because there were fires all over the place and smoke, all right, and and burning, uh, uh, tar and pitch and the smell of sulfur. Josephus wrote about... After the days of Jesus, he wrote about the fall of Jerusalem and so on during the Jewish wars. And he said in his book, The Wars of the Jews, he said that one could still see the burnt remnants of the five cities and that fruit from the region dissolved into smoke and ashes if plucked. So it was this very dead place. And there was even the the burnt out cities in his day that you could still see from the days of Lot when Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities were destroyed. First century geographer Strabo called the valley a land of fires because there were frequent boiling outbursts of fire in the region. The entire area smelled of sulfur and brimstone. That's from the book, The Geography of Strabo. Uh, In more recent times, as early as 1787, uh, others have noticed similar things in the valley. Volney visited the region, and he reported that this valley is the seat of a subterranean fire, which is not yet extinguished. Clouds of smoke 
are often observed to issue from the lake. Okay, so smoke is rising up out of the waters of this lake. You're beginning to see why they would refer to, and that was just to 1787. Okay, that was why people referred to it as the Lake of Fire. 1848, even more recent, a scientific investigation of the region by a man named Lynch reported that the valley held a strong smell of sulfuric hydrogen. Uh, he also wrote that he witnessed a purple vapor rising above the Dead Sea, quote, contrasting strangely with the extraordinary color of the sea beneath and where they blended in the distance, giving it the appearance of smoke from burning sulfur. It seemed, notice this, a vast cauldron of metal, fused but motionless. In the afternoon of the same day, it looked like molten lead. All right? Uh, some scholars, commentators have noticed this as well. John Gill, in his exposition of the entire Bible, a great commentary, uh, in the section on Revelation 20, 14 and 15, points out that the Dead Sea was called the Sulphurous Lake, the Lake of Asphaltites, and the Bituminous Lake. Okay, all of these are references to, you know, fiery lake or volcanic lake, that sort of an idea, okay? Uh, the Jewish people understood that the lake sat in a valley, which used to be the home of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so from the Jewish perspective, they believed that whatever was idolatrous or sinful, if they wanted to get rid of it, then they would go and they would cast it into the salt sea, the dead sea, the, the lake of fire. And Gill, John Gill, quotes the Babylonian Talmud as saying that, quote, any vessels that had on them the image of the sun or of the moon or of a dragon, let them be cast into the salt sea. That reference from the Babylonian Talmud sounds very, very similar to what John writes in Revelation 21.8. Even PBS uh, put out a documentary a while back called A Naked Planet Special, and they said this about the Dead Sea. Geologists have discovered large pockets of gas trapped under the sediment in the southern Dead Sea. When these bubbles escape or are released into the atmosphere by an earthquake, it would only take a spark to ignite a giant inferno or a vast ball of flame raining down. Okay, so there's all these historical references from before the days of Jesus all the way up to now where people are showing that the Dead Sea had fiery symbolism associated with it and smoke and tar and volcanoes and even billows and gouts of flame. And even in the days of Jesus and John, many people referred to it as the Lake of Fire, the fiery lake. Okay? Uh, it's critical to remember also, of course, and the Talmud mentioned this, but the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are probably located beneath the Dead Sea on the southern edge of it, somewhere down there. And uh, there is a mount there uh, called Lot's Wife. Okay, and you go and look at it, and it sort of does look like a woman uh, of sorts, and so it's referred to as Lot's Wife. And so these images and memories, okay, just the whole symbolism of this region shows why John refers to this region as the Lake of Fire in Revelation 21.8. Bottom line is this, okay? There is much historical evidence that in the first century, when people heard about the lake of fire, they didn't think about some afterlife experience where God sends the souls of unbelievers to suffer and burn forever in screaming agony, you know, in a lake of burning lava and fire. No, you don't think that when you hear about Salt Lake or the Valley of Fire, and people in John's day would not have thought that when they heard about the Lake of Fire, they would have thought about the dead, what we call the Dead Sea today. Okay, so if that's the Dead Sea, I'm sorry, if, if the Dead Sea is the Lake of Fire, then how are people cast into the Lake of Fire? The, 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 the texts of Revelation do seem to indicate that some people go there. Well, if it's just this Dead Sea, then, then, then what is John talking about? Well, 
There is some reference here to the symbolism of the destruction of Jerusalem, most likely. Um, But after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the bodies, the dead bodies of over 1 million Jews were dumped into the Valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem. You know what that valley is? It's Gehenna, one of the words we looked at in a previous discussion. And uh, it's this trash dump, this trash heap. It was always on fire outside of the gates of Jerusalem. And so after Jerusalem was destroyed, um, dead bodies, a million bodies were thrown down there and set on fire. Uh, and they burned for a long time. Now, when rains, the rains came then, much, this all always happened, whenever the rains come, they all sort of go down into the valley of Gehenna, and they are washed down this stream bed called the Wadi Anar, which, when translated, means the stream bed of fire. Isn't that interesting? So the Valley of Gehenna is washed when the rains come. All the garbage and ashes and a lot of the, the, the burning piles of refuse are washed away down the stream bed of fire, the Wadi Anar, where they end up where? In the lake of fire, the Dead Sea, at the bottom of the Wadi Anar. So it's a historical fact that as a result of the destruction of Jerusalem, over one million people ended up being cast into the lake of fire. Their bodies were cast into Gehenna, where they were burned, and then the ashes, when the rains came, were washed down the stream bed of fire into the lake of fire. And remember, many Jews believed at that time that if a body, if a person, if anything was cast into or ended up in the Dead Sea, in the Lake of Fire, that it would stay there forever and it would never be raised from the dead in some future resurrection. And by the way, even though uh, John might have been writing before the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, we don't know. Lots of people believe he wrote after, some people believe he wrote it for, whatever your view is. Even if it was before, then John could have been writing some prophetic thing here about the bodies of Jews uh, being cast in the lake of fire, maybe. But also, you know, criminals and others, after they were killed, uh, were often cast into Gehenna. And again, where their bodies would burn and the waters, the rains would come and wash their ashes down into the lake of fire through the stream bed of fire also. Okay, so regardless of when John was writing or which bodies he's referring to, this is the symbolism and the picture that the people would have heard, would have understood when they read uh, John's description in Revelation 20 and 21. Okay, so speaking of then, uh, Revelation 20 and 21, let's, let's look at these passages a little more carefully and talk about what John is actually teaching. Now, Brad Jerzak, in his great book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, if you haven't read that book, you really must. And by the way, I'm pleased to announce that Brad has agreed to write the foreword to my book, What is Hell?, and uh, he sent it to me yesterday, so I'm excited to uh, have Brad write the foreword to my book. He's probably one of the premier scholars of our day, so it's a real honor to have him have him write the foreword. And uh, his book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, I consider to be the best book written on hell ever. Okay, I don't fully agree with his conclusions, and I, but that's okay. I doubt he fully agrees with the conclusions in my book. And uh, but but we still can uh, agree that we're both or recommend each other because we're both looking for a way to understand hell that doesn't uh, impugn the character of God. The point is, okay, uh, Brad Jerzak said that these statements in Revelation twenty and twenty one are an apocalyptic threat of being leveled by the fire of God's wrath. All right, uh, historically fulfilled through obliteration by foreign armies. Okay, in Revelation, the threat is specific to Jerusalem. That's what Brad Jerzak says. And it does seem from passages like Isaiah 1 that the city of Jerusalem and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, that they do suffer these sorts of fates, right? Many, when when Jerusalem was destroyed, many of those who lived there ended up in the lake of fire, the Dead Sea. Same with Sodom and Gomorrah. When, When they were destroyed, those cities and those who lived in them ended up in the lake of fire. And other cities that behaved in similar ways are also described with similar ends, being destroyed and they're never heard from again, that sort of a thing. 
Okay. But here's the thing. And here's where John, you need to understand that when John is writing Revelation, what he often does is he takes some of the ideas and theology and teachings from his day and he presents it, but then he twists it. All right. Uh, he almost redeems some of these ideas. Um, and, and, and we see that, by the way, all throughout the Bible. Go and listen to my podcast episodes on Genesis to see how Moses did this with the Egyptian and Canaanite creation myths in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. All right. Uh, John is doing the same thing in Revelation. All right. Um, he, he puts a little twist on his telling of the events. So I said, and let's see how John does that. I said that the Jewish people in John's day believed that anything cast into the lake of fire stayed there forever. John, though, points out that those who are cast into the lake of fire will come back. That is, they will be resurrected. And so here's the, the, the hope for, for example, for Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem exists today, doesn't it? So even though... Jerusalem was destroyed and cast into the lake of fire. You can go visit Jerusalem today. It has been resurrected from the ashes. And Jerusalem, according to prophecy, will play a significant and prominent role in the future, I believe. Especially when this new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God. That's Revelation 21.2. Okay? And in this way, the city of Jerusalem sort of serves as a foreshadowing or um, first fruits of other cities that also experienced fiery judgment, but will be brought back from death and destruction, brought, you know, resurrected in a sense. Um, Ezekiel 16 and, and Ezekiel 47 talk about this, that even the cities like Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed and are still residing in the Dead Sea, in the Lake of Fire, even those cities, in the restorative, in the restoration purposes of God, God will raise those cities back up to fruitfulness, life, and fertility, right? And this will occur when Jesus returns and brings healing and restoration to this entire world, okay? So, this is how John distorts, changes, redeems the imagery from his day. Many people, Jewish people, believe, oh, if you end up in the lake of fire, that's it for you. No resurrection for you. John says, no, even the cities that are cast into the lake of fire, they too will be restored. All right? Though, the, though Jerusalem was cast or will be cast in, it was restored. Though Sodom and Gomorrah were burned with fire and brimstone, they will be restored. Okay, so uh, the things that are cast into the lake of fire in a way are restored. But the thing is, is they're not restored the way they were before. All right. And this is what John is talking about in uh, Revelation 20 and 21. The things that led to the destruction of these cities, those things are not restored. All right. Um, What sorts of things? Well, John mentions several in Revelation 20 and 21. For example, the devil, Satan, is cast into the lake of fire. And that means it it is, I'm referring to Satan as it, because I believe that Satan is sort of the spirit of accusation, the accuser, uh, and scapegoating. You can read my book, uh, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, to learn a whole lot more about that. Um, Idolatry of science and money, I believe that is symbolized by the beast, in Revelation, uh, and so the beast also is cast into the lake of fire. Uh, human religion, I believe that is symbolized by the false prophet in Revelation. All useless and destructive ways of living, death, and the reign of hell on earth, Hades, right? All of these things, the devil, the beast, the false prophet, death and hell, Hades, are all cast into the lake of fire. These are the things that led to the destruction of the cities. And while the cities themselves will be restored, redeemed, and sort of resurrected, in a sense, the things that led to their destruction, accusation, scapegoating, the the idolatry of science and money, human religion, useless, destructive ways of living, these things will not be brought back And they will, these five primary enemies of humanity will stay forever in the lake of fire, never to be heard from again. In fact, in Revelation 21.4, 
Uh, they're not even named. They're just called the former things. Okay, so after they've been cast in, John doesn't even mention them again. Now, he does mention death in 21.8 for the last time, but there he only refers, it as, refers to it as the second death as a way to describe the experience of some people who end up in the lake of fire. And we'll be talking about that in just a minute, okay? So there's no possible restoration or redemption for accusation, idolatry, man-made religion, destruction, or the reign of hell. All right, these are sent away. We could call it the sea of forgetfulness. That'd be a good way to think of the Dead Sea, the symbolism, the symbolic significance of the lake of fire or the Dead Sea. Okay? And by the way, the fact that intangible things, items, uh, concepts, are cast into the lake of fire indicates that the lake of fire, uh, the symbolism of it, is not a tangible thing either. It also must be intangible. Okay, I mean, yes, the Dead Sea is a tangible place, but John is referring to it as using it in a symbolic way to talk about death and scapegoating and accusation and religion, right, and idolatry being cast into it. Okay, and you cannot cast intangible concepts into a tangible place. Okay, but you can put an immaterial or intangible concept, power or force, into something immaterial. Okay, it would be symbolic. So, you know, for example, if I say I have love in my heart, okay, I don't literally mean that I have the intangible love, that it resides in the blood pumping, you know, organ of my body. Right? Instead, since love is intangible and immaterial, that means heart also is intangible and immaterial. All right? It's symbolic. I'm referring to I have love inside me. Okay? That also is how to understand the lake of fire. And just the, con- the idea here that these intangible items are thrown into the lake of fire shows us that since they are intangible, immaterial, the lake of fire is also. All right? And uh, it should be understood symbolically in that way. So, ah, Gehenna, just like Gehenna. Okay, remember we talked about Gehenna. It also was a, a literal place. It's this valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem. But when Jesus talks about it in Matthew, he's referring to the symbolism of it and what happens in Gehenna, this valley, this trash dump outside of Jerusalem, as a way that people can destroy their lives here and now. And uh, that is also what John is doing when he refers to the lake of fire. Yes, it was a literal place, but he's using the symbolism of that place to teach about something that's going to happen in the future when Jesus returns and, and, and destroys death and the devil and uh, idolatry of religion, human religion, idolatry of science and money and all those sorts of concepts that are talked about. Okay, so with all that in mind, then, um, by the way, let, you know, let, let's just pause first and talk about this word torment. You might say, yeah, but Jeremy, how then are t- intangible things tormented, right? Because uh, John does talk about things being tormented in the lake of fire, but, but intangible things cannot be tormented either, tortured, right? Well, the word for torment that John uses here is the Greek word uh, basanizo, uh, which literally means to rub a touchstone. Okay, that is the literal translation, to rub a touchstone. What's a touchstone? A touchstone, uh, basanos, was a stone used to test the quality of metals, especially of gold. All right, in fact, it's even used sometimes that way today. It was a fine-grained, dark jasper stone, and you can rub gold on it to see the quality of the gold or whether it's fake gold or not. You, uh, back in the days of John, a basanos, a touchstone, helped determine whether or not coins, gold coins, were counterfeit. Okay. Now, here we have a tangible item, a basanos, Okay, using the symbolism of it, rubbing gold on it to determine whether the gold is real. And it's used in various ways throughout the Bible in a symbolic way. 
in reference to physical suffering. When physical suffering comes in our life, this physical suffering is a touchstone that helps determine the purity or quality of our life. Are you literally getting rubbed against a stone when you go through physical suffering? No, you're not. But it feels like that, and it's very symbolic that way. Uh, hard toil, even the pain of childbirth. Okay, these things all refer are, are touched. The word "touched" on basanos is is used to um, refer to all of those types of things. Okay, um, a, a ship in a storm can be buffeted or battered, um, like against a touchstone. In the Gospels, Matthew eight twenty nine, the demons ask Jesus if he has come to torment them. Okay, basanizo before the set time. Okay. Now, here in Revelation, then, the word only applies to the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. And they're not people. They are institutions. They are fallen powers that have been twisted and distorted and perverted away from God's will and design. And these things will be tormented in that, like a counterfeit coin, right? They will be judged. They'll be, in a sense, rubbed against the basanos, the touchstone, to see whether they are real or counterfeit, and they will be determined to be counterfeit because they are not functioning. They are not uh, operating the way God intended or desired. They've been twisted, distorted, and fallen. And so they are discarded and thrown out. They have, in other words, they will have no more value. If you received a fake coin and you rub it against a basanos, a touchstone, you realize this is a fake gold coin, you throw it out. And if the person who gave it to you is still there, if they are the counterfeiter, you arrest them. If they said, oh, I don't know where I got that from, then, you know, maybe an investigation would under, under uh, would be undertaken. Either way, though, you're going to toss out this gold coin. It has no more value, no more power, no more influence. That is what John is talking about with these powers that have so much power in the world today. Spirit of accusation and scapegoating, the idolatry of religion and money, okay? Human religion, the idolatry of science, um... All of these things have so much power, but when Jesus comes, he's going to rub them against the touchstone and say, no, these are fake, these are forgeries, these are twisted perversions, away with them into the lake of fire. They have no more influence, no more power, no more value, no more place in this world, right? And that is what the word torment means. And when you read carefully the description there, all right, uh, we see that it is primarily this torment touchstone is primarily against these fallen powers, these twisted perversions of God's good creation. Whew, okay, all of this brings us then to what about people who are cast into the lake of fire? All right, Revelation 20, 13 and 15 does say that the sea, death, and Hades give up the dead who are in them and they're judged at the great white throne judgment, and then they are cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so what about these people? Okay, everything I've talked about so far up to this point has led us to this point. What about the people who are cast into the lake of fire? And John lists them. He lists the cowardly, unbelieving, murderers, sexually immoral, and liars. By the way, uh, <laughs> who doesn't meet at least one of these descriptions? And if you say, not me, well, <laughs> include yourself among the liars then, okay? So I don't think John is saying that everybody who has committed one of these sins ends up in the lake of fire. It obviously can't mean that. Okay, we've all been cowardly at times. We've all had unbelief at times. Hopefully we haven't murdered somebody, but if we follow Jesus' instructions in the Sermon on the Mount, okay, called someone a fool, then basically the same as murdering, same as sexual immorality, lying, of course, who hasn't lied, okay? So scholars argue about this, what John is referring to, and they try to go back and look at past historical events or the destruction of Jerusalem and so on, and they look at, you know, maybe cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and say, well, these cities were described with these sorts of sins, all right, and so they were destroyed by fire. And since the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah at the bottom of the Dead Sea, the lake of fire, that's what John is referring to, okay? 
or maybe uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and something like that. Um, okay, but the thing is, is I want you to read the text very, very carefully and notice that, yes, human beings do end up in the lake of fire. And it even mentions that they are tormented. But be very careful on the grammar here. What Here's one of these ways that John is turning, right, redeeming the text in a sense. The text in Revelation 20.15 does not say that the people who end up in the lake of fire are tormented by the lake of fire. Okay? Yes, the devil, the beast, the false prophet are tormented, okay? but humans are not tormented by the lake of fire or in the lake of fire. In fact, the exact opposite seems to be true. It seems when you look at the entire message of the book of Revelation, that the people who go there are sent there, whatever there is, to escape torment. Okay, Not to be tormented, but to escape torment. Let me show you what I mean. And we see this by looking at this concept of torment on humans as it is discussed throughout the book of Revelation. Just real briefly, earlier in the book of Revelation, in uh, Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11, John wrote that the people who worship the beast and his image will be tormented with fire and brimstone. You say, aha, see, they are tormented with fire and brimstone in the lake of fire. But wait, (laughs) it says, in the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Okay, now, the word for torment there is the same word used in Revelation 20.10. Okay? But the torment that these people experience in Revelation 14 doesn't come from the lake of fire, does it? It can't, because they're not in the lake of fire yet. They're not sent to the lake of fire until after the great white throne judgment. So here, earlier on in the book, while they're still alive, <laughs> okay, Revelation 14, 10, and 11, they will be tormented with fire and brimstone. All right? Their experience of torment comes from this fire and brimstone and uh, the the fact that their smoke ascends forever and ever. So so John is subverting this violent imagery in a very careful way. And basically, what Revelation 14, 10 is saying is that the torment these people receive is in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Okay? So where does their torment come from? From the presence of holiness, the presence of Jesus. Isn't that strange? This is, that's Revelation 14.10. They are only tormented when they are in the presence of Jesus and the holy angels. And by the way, the holy angels probably represents the church that we read about in Revelation, uh, the, the early chapters, Revelation 2 and 3. So these people are tormented when they are in the presence of Jesus in the church. Okay. So does this mean that our entertainment in heaven is going to be to go down there and torment all the wicked unbelievers? Ha ha ha, look at you. Because we are coming down to be around you, we know you're suffering sinners. No, I I don't think heaven will be very blissful if that's what it is like. We're not going to be full of revenge of that sort when we are with God in eternity. Okay, this would be less than restful. Quite to the contrary, it appears that John is saying that as long as these people are worshiping the beast and his image, again, we could talk about what that represents in great detail, it is torment for them to be in the presence of Jesus in the church. How is it torment? Well, earlier in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 11.10, John writes that these same people are tormented by the preaching and presence of the two witnesses. Remember these two witnesses? Again, people argue about who they are or what they represent. It doesn't matter. But they come and they preach the truth of the gospel and the truth about God and coming judgment, all sorts of things. And the people who hear them are tormented by what they hear. Revelation 11.10. Again, this idea that they are tormented by the presence of righteousness, by the presence of Jesus in the church. Okay? This torment, I believe, refers to to the inner conviction that people feel when they are presented by something that is contrary to their spirit or to their nature. Look, you and I, having the righteousness of God, 
we are tormented, 2 Peter 2.8, when we are in the presence of wickedness. Wicked people, when they're worshiping the false, uh, the beast and the false prophet, they are tormented by the opposite things when they are presented with righteousness in the presence of righteousness. Okay, this means then, and it's a it's an inner conviction, an inner torment, a, a, a burning of their conscience in a sense. Okay, this shows us then that the torment, the basinazo of humans in in the book of Revelation, it's not physical torture, burning in fire. Instead. It's a symbolic way of talking about the spiritual vexation, anguish in a sense, the burning, searing conscience that unrighteous people experience when they are presented with the truth, when their behavior is challenged. Now, in Revelation 11.10, the two witnesses come, the people who hear their message, they don't like it, they are in torment over it. And what do they do? They kill the two witnesses. (laughs) Why? To escape the torment. Are they literally burning? No. But now they feel like they've silenced the source of their spiritual vexation, the things that is causing them inner pain and turmoil. They kill the two witnesses. Uh, John writes in Revelation 14.10, though, that they will continue to experience the torment of of the truth as long as they're in the presence of Jesus and the holy angels. All right? So, as we read through the book of Revelation, we see this in lots of other passages in Scripture. Jesus comes, when he comes, he separates the sheep and the goats. He separates the righteous from the unrighteous. He separates the people of God from uh, the people of this world. Why does Jesus do this? He does it because he's merciful and gracious. And he knows that these two groups, who have nothing in common, really, as far as their values and goals and what's important to them, The presence of each other is tormenting the other one. Okay, so Jesus separates them so that neither group is tormented. So this brings us to Revelation 20, 14, and 15. Jesus, out of love for the people who don't want to hear the truth, who don't want to be in his presence, who don't want to have anything to do with the church, but instead want to worship the beast and the false prophet and live according to the ways of death and Hades, Jesus separates them from all those things that cause them torment and sends them to the lake of fire. Not to be tormented, but to escape the convicting and tormenting presence of Jesus in the church. Now, what will their existence be like? What will they do? <laughs> okay, How will they live in the lake of fire, whatever that is? The truth is, we don't know. Okay? The Bible doesn't say We can be certain, based on what we know about Jesus, about God, that it's not going to be torment. It's not going to be torture. We've already seen that. Jesus sends them there to escape torture so that they won't be tormented by his presence and the presence of the church. Okay? It won't be burning and screaming in a lake of burning lava for all eternity. Scripture simply doesn't tell us what their existence will be like. Scripture doesn't... It might not even be rightly called existence, in a sense, or even life. Uh, it sort of seems that, I don't even know what, what to call it, life or existence in the lake of fire. It's not a literal place of burning flame. Um, my speculation on this is that it will be a place where people are allowed to live in eternity, Uh, They will have resurrected bodies, just like ours. Jesus died for everyone. Everyone gets raised to to new life, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting death, a second death. John calls it the second death. Uh, And and their existence will basically be the opposite of ours in eternity. Okay? Uh, They will be allowed to live however they want. In eternity, we also will be allowed to live however we want. But we will want to live according to the ways of God. They will want to live in the opposite ways of God. So it will sort of be a place, an existence, a life, I hesitate to use those words, um, that is where God gives them what they want. God, we don't want to live according to your ways. We don't want to follow your will. We want to go our own way, do whatever we want. And God says, fine, I love you. (laughs) I'm not going to force you to love me. And so therefore, I'm going to let you go your own way. 
You want human freedom apart from me? Okay, here you go. Here is a place where you can experience that way of living, which is actually dying, if that's really what you want. And again, I speculate, but I imagine God's not vindictive. I imagine, speculate, that it's going to be somewhat like this earth, okay? Not a burning place of flame and lava where people are screaming and tortured, okay? But this is this world is a world of death. It's what I would think the Bible refers to as the first death, and they will live in the second death, in a place somewhat like this world, okay? But um, without physical death to end their existence. Now, people say, well, that sounds great. That doesn't sound bad at all. I want that. How is that bad? Yeah, but you think about it for a minute. Okay, it's a place where God, um, where his will is not obeyed, where there's no church, okay, to bring a conscience to people. It's the, the worst of the worst is brought out in people in, in that sort of setting, and there's no end to it. It just gets worse and worse and worse as time goes on. Uh, people who try to live apart from God, um, they live in a way that God never intended. And their existence will be one of brokenness, uh, broken relationships, their expectations and dreams. They'll have some hopes, plans, goals. They will all come to ruin. Nothing will be fulfilling or satisfying or enjoyable. It will be an existence of selfish, hateful brokenness. The opposite, the exact opposite, 100% opposite of what God intended or desired. It truly will be a hellish existence, not God torturing them, but them living the way they want, the way they expect, the way they think they want to be, without any end to it. Uh, This world, no matter how bad it gets, we know there's an end coming in death. In that way, death is a blessing. Talk about that in my course, The Gospel Dictionary, when we look at death. Lots of people look upon death as a curse. It isn't. Death is a blessing because it allows us to escape this sinful world and these sinful bodies and be given a new resurrected glorified body so that we can live the way God originally intended and desired. So currently we have a way out through death. But those who live in the lake of fire in the second death experience, they have no way out. There is no end to it. Okay? It will be a life dominated by the sins mentioned in Revelation 21.8. Sexual immorality and cowardly and lying, okay? Uh, murder, except nobody dies. Violence, for sure, probably, of some sort, okay? Except without any death. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I believe, held a similar view, and he writes about it in his book, The Great Divorce. Now, he says, when he wrote the book, and I'll give him the benefit of the doubt on this, that he was writing a fantasy book. And I think, to some degree, he just said that because he knew that most people would condemn him for a heretic if he said, no, this is what I think hell will be like. But, um, I, I, you know, I sort of think, based on the book and, and reading pretty much everything C.S. Lewis has written, lot of his journals and letters as well, that he didn't think what he wrote in The Great Divorce is probably what he believed hell would actually be like for those who live there. And he describes this place that people go, and initially they find themselves in a city, sort of like the London, except darker and dimmer and gloomier, um, that uh, C.S. Lewis was living in at that time. But the longer they're there, they have arguments with their neighbors, and you know they just can't get along, so they move away. And eventually, over time, people are you know millions and millions of years, traveling years, away from anybody else. They're out in solitude because they just can't live with anybody else. And it's this idea of separation. The longer people live in that existence, the more separated they get from each other, from everything that God wanted and desired for them. Okay, so again, all of that is speculation. The Bible doesn't say anything really about the experience of the unregenerate dead in eternity. But one thing we do know, as I've tried to point out in this podcast study and in all of the ones previous to this, whatever the experience is for unbelievers in the afterlife, it's not going to be a place where God burns them in screaming agony, fire, and, and lakes of lava where the, the demons are gleefully torturing them. Okay, Uh, their existence will probably be something a little bit like this life, 
where they just continue to make bad choices and live in self-centeredness, which leads to complete separation from themselves, what God wanted for themselves, from everybody else, and from everything that God intended for them. Okay? So, whew, that's the lake of fire. I know I went through a lot of that fast. You probably had a lot of the questions, but just sort of to summarize, what is the lake of fire? Well, when John wrote about it in the book of Revelation, it's literally the Dead Sea. Okay? At that time, anything that was contrary to God was cast into the Dead Sea, sea of forgetfulness, sort of. Um, and, and John comes along and says, yeah, but even a lot of those will be raised to, to raised up the city, Sodom and Gomorrah, the dead Jerusalem. Okay. But the things that caused them false religion, idolatry, all the spirit of accusation, scapegoating, none of that comes back. Okay. In the future, um, as a symbol for people who go there, it just refers to existence without God, people who are sent to the lake of fire for eternity. They're not going to be screaming in burning flames for all eternity. Look, the people who live in Salt Lake, they're not covered in salt all the time as they live there. The people who live in the lake of fire won't be burning in fire either for all eternity while they live there. They'll be given exactly what they think they want. Freedom from God to live however they want, however they please, apart from the guidelines and instructions of God. So this way of living, it's not really living, is it? It's actually the opposite of living, which is why John does refer to it in Revelation 21.8 as the second death. So look, we've looked at all these terms. Sheol, Gehenna, outer darkness, abyss, Tartarus, lake of fire. None of them teach that there is a place where God is going to torture people in burning flames for all eternity after they die. Not even the lake of fire is a place of torture where God tortures people. Uh, yeah, it's not a great experience. It's a horrible experience for the people who live there, but it is one of their own choosing. And God lets them go their own way because God is a God of love and he's not going to force them to love him in return. Okay, But this experience of living without God uh, will be an experience of ongoing eternal death for them. All right, At Whatever it is that that looks like. So look, I imagine you have a lot more questions about this. Maybe you even want a deeper explanation of this. I do encourage you to get my book, What is Hell? It does contain all of this explanation, plus more footnotes and details and quotes, Bible references, explanation of Bible verses, background information, all sorts of things, not just on the lake of fire, but all these other words we've looked at, plus this explanation of what... Uh, hell might look like in this life and people's existence in eternity might look like. And we look in depth at many Bible passages. That book is available for pre-order right now on Amazon. Just go to Amazon, search for what is hell. You can get the Kindle version pre-ordered that way. And uh, look, if you really want to support this podcast, you can get some of my other books. Thank you so much for doing that. If you already read them, get some copies for friends and family, pass them around. That supports the podcast. Ultimately, if you want the full experience, Join my online discipleship group. Go to redeeminggod.com slash join. You can learn more, see what courses are available, and sign up. Join us, take some of the courses, and get started. Take the first step in discovering what God wants you to know from Scripture and how He wants you to live. All right, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Next week, we're going to start diving into some of the passages of Scripture that talk about hell that seem to. We're going to begin with sort of an odd one, James 3, 6 and 5, 3. But I have a very important reason for why we're going to start there. So join us then. We'll see you. Bye.